Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live and our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, firmly believe that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Moving to Live seeks out people who move in interesting and different ways, and we try to break down knowledge silos so professionals and amateur aficionados of movement can learn from the guests that we interview just like we learn. This week, we sat down with Deborah Carroll, known as Rehab Deb, on Instagram and talked about her path from working in professional cycling to doing rehab on animals. If you've got a four-legged friend that's a key part of your movement like mine, then you'll sure you'll be interested in this interview and take something away from it. We hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Deborah Carroll, aka Rehab Deb. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. Along with our sister podcast, Lab Pittsburgh, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. As I've mentioned before, some of the people I interview for Moving to Live are people that I know or who are recommended by professional colleagues or friends. Some people I either stalk on the internet, and I mean that in a good way through the social media that they post, or I see something on Instagram or Facebook and it kind of piques my interest. Today's guest is somebody we were talking before recording. We don't know exactly when we connected, but we have been following each other on Instagram, and I think I'm probably extremely interested in what she has to say, because if you follow Moving to Live in FitLab Pittsburgh, you know that uh, a lot of my movement occurs in the woods with my two dogs. Our guest today is Deborah Carroll. You may find her on Instagram as Rehab Deb, and she works doing rehabilitation for animals. She actually lives in a van and travels around the country. And she does a lot of virtual teaching, and I'm interested in her path to get there and this decision to work with animals versus humans. And I'm also interested in hearing her insights on how and why rehab is important for animals so that they can be a valuable part of our life. So, Deborah, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Hey, Ben, thank you so much. My question I always ask Moving to Live guests the first question is, 
I tell them the elevator speech, but since you told me you're in Leadville, Colorado, you're standing at the uh, local coffee shop in line and you've got a rehab Deb t-shirt or hat or something and somebody says, what do you do? And what's your 30-second coffee shop line that you tell people? Uh, that does happen because I have a shirt. I have my logo, which is uh, uh, right now it's a dog with it standing upright like a human would, lifting a dumbbell over its head and an arm in a sling and a bandage on the tail and a bandage on uh, one of the rear legs. And the name is Rehabilitation and Conditioning for Animals. So when people see that, they go, oh, my gosh, you know, so they can read that and they see this dog lifting weights and they go, what the heck do you do? And I say, I have created functional rehabilitation, movement programs, recovery from surgery or from injury without surgery and working within veterinary medicine in collaboration with veterinarians. And I think that's my shortest answer. And we'll get more into what exactly that means in the second part of this interview. I think my question before I find out more about your background is when you say that to me, I'm like, well, makes sense because I know with my dog that I put down this spring when the vet said, you know, she's kind of dragging your legs a little bit. I put dog boots on her. I switched to soft surfaces and I did everything that I would do when I was injured as a runner thinking, well, that will work for her too. And amazingly enough, and I'm saying that sarcastically, it did work. But I'm curious when people, when you tell people that, do you ever have the comment back from people saying, well, they're just dogs. Why do they need to do that? You just, uh, you know, give them some medicine or they have the surgery and immediately they're better. I know you'll believe this um, and maybe uh, the listening audience will or will be surprised. I get that response more from veterinarians than from any clients. And, um, and that's somewhat disheartening, but it, the veterinary schools, you know, the veterinarians will tell me we don't learn nutrition. We get like half a semester or six weeks of a book and we don't learn this it's like a human doctor. And because I've worked on the human side for so long, I can tend to um, make a potential client or just a, an average person who asks me questions feel a little bit better because they want to say, well, why don't the veterinarians know this? And I go, well, you know, your regular medical doctor isn't, is just coming on board with some of this stuff themselves. It's, it's not part of the training. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that, but um, it's mostly veterinarians. In fact, in my first year of independent work, when I left the specialty hospital, I had a veterinarian contact me about a dog with hip problems and I said, well, I would do this and then we'll build a base and then we'll do this. And then one of the things I said, after we build a base and after the dog's ready, um, we'll do some hill work to build muscle. And she stops me. She says, but it's a dog. And I was just like, what? I said, well, it has muscle, bone, connective tissue. Uh, it's, it works physiologically a lot the same way we do as a dog, but climbing hills are going to build these muscles, you know, after you've prepared the appropriate base work. And she thought about that and she's like, huh. And I've had, you know, veterinarians repeat that over and over, but it's a dog or it's a cat. And that's another hard sell because I do a lot of rehab for cats, but that's not even really promoted that much in veterinary. And they need a lot of the same stuff. I had a cat with, uh, a cat patient that had horrible hip arthritis and the surgeon had advised the cat to not do anything. And I said, you, you know, get to your regular vet or I can recommend another one or you can try with the surgeon, but you need appropriate pain meds for this cat because 
cats are harder to dose than than humans and dogs. Horses and cats are over here in the department of we we don't do well with medications and we might go feed up. And so I said, you get the appropriate pain meds, and yes, the cat needs to move because the cat needs to to lubricate the joint and needs to build the muscle. All the things that that we know from human sports science and and crossing those over and saying this is a biological being that's going to respond. You know, they're they may have more mitochondria, they may have less. There's a lot of studies out there to tell which what kind of mitochondria and what kind of speedy recovery or slow recovery, you know, and the differences. But the the bulk of the main things is the same. It's yes, it may be a cat, but it still needs to move if it has arthritis. And the big problem is pain control and in that case and getting it moving. But to just sit still is going to get you nothing. You know, you're only going to get worse and frozen up. So they do say that. And it's, it's, I've had veterinarians say that. Now, people, when I answer, they'll go, oh, that makes sense. Because it resonates with things they've heard or it resonates with their intuition. And they ask a doctor who says, no, rehab won't help. Uh, and eventually they come around and they go, huh, well, but this makes sense. I'll try another avenue. So the the people have a, a little bit more of an open mind about it in general than somebody who's deeply entrenched in a particular one route of training, I guess is a good way to answer that. Do you find people who come to you that maybe they ha- they are in the horse industry? Because I know rehab is fairly common used, commonly used with expensive horses. Do you find that they often see yeah. out and say, hey, you know, I know this works for my $5 million racehorse. Is this something that's similar that we can do for my dog or my cat or any other animal? Yeah, I have a couple of points um, that are always on the front of my brain or tip of my tongue about that. One is that if a client seeks me out or is referred to me by a veterinarian that for something for their, their dog, mostly it's dogs or cat, and they have a horse, I immediately have a higher confidence level in their ability to follow through because horses are expensive. They're, they're fickle in some ways. And I love horses. I was going to grow up and marry a horse. That's what I told my parents when I was little. Um, I love horses, but they can also be super fickle and it takes um, a lot of work to do it right. Now, you know, there's people that are messing up their animals all over the place, including me at times when I was younger and I just didn't know any better. But um, I, I have a lot more confidence in the horse people to follow through with a rehab protocol for their smaller animals because <laughs> that's going to be a lot easier probably for them than dealing with their horse. And the other thing is that um, interesting point is uh, it occurred to me pretty early on in, in um, my early work in veterinary rehab, I couldn't figure out why on earth the water treadmill had such a big foothold when most of the time all that was needed was some standard exercise science protocol based on the ground and accompanied by appropriate pain medication, which is very easy to do in a dog if you take a little time. Yeah, they may not respond to tramadol or they may not respond to gabapentin or whatever the drugs were we were using more often in 2004 and five and whatever the latest, greatest favorite is, but they don't need the water treadmill to recover. And it occurred to me that that just got, got brought over as what I call smoke and mirrors or bells and whistles. So that 
right off the bat offends a lot of people who don't know additional science. When I said, we don't need this. It's traumatizing to the pet, even though you see millions of pictures online about how great the water treadmill is and how much the dog's appreciating it. But also, there's not an exercise science protocol that's based on, on solid, you know, movement that I might have known since the late 70s, but that may have even been around for hundreds of years, because people have been training and learning movement protocol and ideas, you know, for millennia, really. I mean, when you think about it. And so this got crossed over, I believe, just from the horse world, because you, you really have to use a water displacement for the heavy weight of the horse coupled with the fact that injured horses, you know, are hard to hard to recover because of their weight and because they don't adapt to all the same, you know, it's very hard to get the right pain medications and they're usually pretty heavy duty. And so if you use a, a version of pain control and the water treadmill, that's going to help a horse heal where they've got, you know, issues, especially in, in their distal legs and their lower legs. And they've got all this weight up here standing on these two sticks. So the displacement's awesome. But you don't need that for a dachshund and you don't need it for a St. Bernard. Um, and you don't need it for all the neurology cases. And you really don't need it post-surgically if the surgery's been done. Um, well, there are no complications from surgery, which can happen regardless of how well the surgery's done, like infection or whatever. But um, the, my contention is the, the right amount of pain control and the right exercises always produce a, a better benefit, um, barring any other extenuating circumstances. So I, I brought in my, my favorite um, shtick about the water treadmill, but that has to do, you know, with the horses and the crossover. And a lot of people are familiar with water treadmill if they have horses, but they're even more surprised that, that they can get, you know, a basic recovery going without having to take their pet somewhere to water treadmill, which is different for horses because there are a lot less horse water treadmills around. So that really is a big cumbersome activity to get involved in, but then so is horse husbandry. So it sounds a lot like that's my answer about that. (laughs) It sounds a lot like it's transferred over from horses, similar to how people read or see a program that an elite level athlete is doing and immediately they say, well, that's good for me or that's good for the non-elite athletes that I coach. And as we both know, that never works very well because an elite athlete is vastly different from somebody who's non-elite or somebody who's younger and not physically mature. Yes, exactly. And, um, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, I think it was off the record, but, um, or you may have said it in this podcast now, I've already forgotten, but uh, where um, people are surprised, you know, about doing activity that's purposeful with their pets and with their dogs in particular. And I do run into people who, um, you know, don't even necessarily go on a walk themselves. Their idea is just, you know, open the back door and the dog goes out and goes to the bathroom and gets all the exercise it needs if it wants it. And then it comes back in. And I understand that that, that's the way a lot of people operate and they don't think any differently. And especially if they're not particularly active themselves, whereas, you know, horses, um, yeah. (laughs) And elite athletes, you can't just go from, you know, running around the backyard to, um, hunting elk in the Rockies and, and not have any interim and you, and not get injured, you know, not having any middle ground foundation with all the, uh, proprioceptive work and neuromuscular work and stuff you know about, but 
there is a lot to training that. And it can be so simple, you know, just simple progressive work builds that foundation. And, and you know that. Um, and that's uh, a big part of what I found was, was missing when I came into veterinary rehabilitation uh, at the end of 2004. I was like, well, where's all our simple foundation programs? You don't just go from surgery, stay in a crate for 12 weeks and get up and return to normal activity. Uh, uh, anybody, any particular being needs a lot more in between there to not get messed up again. And um, there's statistics in veterinary medicine, especially regarding uh, torn knee ligaments that, oh, well, you know, it's commonly said even now, you know, 15 years after I started practicing is well you're there's a good likelihood your dog's going to tear the other knee within the next year then that you know in their statistics and my answer is that's because there's not there weren't any good recovery programs post-surgically and they don't balance out the surgical leg versus the other leg and when you get that balance when people follow my program i've never had one who's followed my program have the other leg tear within the next year. And a lot of them never actually tore the other leg. And I, I do get a lot that I work on recovering non-surgically, which works just fine. Um, that's a whole nother thing. And I'd like to do get involved in the research to prove that I haven't seen any good, well-written exercise physiology or strength and conditioning based, um, programs besides mine that, that could actually do to bring that kind of success at a university level study. But I'd like to get that done one day along with a hundred other things. We're talking with Deborah Carroll. She is rehab Deb. I know one of the things you often say when you work in whatever field you happen to work with is if you're going to do something, find your niche where you do something different or you do something better. And I think if you're working with animals with rehabilitation, in my opinion, that's better than what most people are doing, as you've described, who are in uh, rehab for pets. And also, it's definitely different. But I'm always curious with people that I interview for Moving to Live, most of them are fairly active. And I know from talking to you, you're fairly active too. I'm always interested if they were active growing up. And if they were active growing up, was it because mom and dad said, you have to play these organized sports? Or they said, get out the door and I don't want to see you till dinner time? Or was it more along the lines of your family was active growing up and that was just the norm. I know we were talking before we started recording. We're just saying, you know, you and I can't imagine not moving. That's just the way we do. And when we go on vacation, we find places to move. So I'm curious, was that something that your parents did too? Or was it more along the lines of just get out the door and don't come back till dinner? Um, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know how old you are. I've, I've seen your pictures and you may be a little younger than I am. I was born in 1963 and we had a whole lot less of, you know, getting to watch TV, maybe on weekend mornings. But, um, n you know, there wasn't, we didn't watch TV during the day and we would go outside and play. And a lot of people close to my age range were brought up that way. No, go outside. No, go outside. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, I know my sister and I are a lot different. I have one younger sister. Mm, I think. She's also very active, but I was more driven to run all over the place and discover things. And I was always running through the woods wherever we lived, climbing trees and um, finding people, getting into trouble, dragging other people into trouble, running from trouble. You know, just just silly, fun kid stuff, but constantly out on my bicycle, running around the neighborhood, um, late coming home, getting in trouble for that. Uh, you know, so as 
at a young age, um, having uh, just been told to go outside and play and, and um, go find something to do, go read a book. I'd read all my books. We'd go to the library and I'd read all my books the first day uh, and then uh, go run around and, and be more active again. So um, my um, parents are both pretty active. My dad worked for the Forest Service when I was growing up and both my parents are only children. My mom passed in 2015 um, and my dad uh, wasn't around a whole lot growing up because when he, he was first in the forest service, he'd end up getting, he would take care of large forest districts. He worked in Ocala national forest. He worked in Northern Georgia and Southern South Carolina and he covered, you know, large districts there. And so mom had both my sister and me and she would do things like um, play softball with us. Uh, I remember her teaching us to fly kites or, just letting us be outside. And, you know, that's another thing when, when I grew up in, in the seventies, even sixties um, and seventies, we had what seemed like a whole lot more freedom running around our neighborhoods than, than I see my friends' kids have now. Um, I have a lot of friends in their thirties because I've had breast cancer and I've been part of a huge group of women in the Austin, Texas area. And so I've got lots of friends, you know, raising their kids through elementary and high school and, and we talk about differences about how they were raised because they're a generation younger than I am. And then there's their kids. And then there's all the running around that we got to do that kids a lot of times don't seem to get to do now. I mean, our organized sports might've been an additional thing through the YMCA or YWCA or some community group, but uh, like, and, and so you would go and swim in the pool during the summers, but now you know how, how the model is. It's, there's a lot of heavy duty, soccer or baseball or volleyball and you buy into um um you know the group sports thing where it's team sports and it's um what do they call it club sports and and parents pay a lot of money and the kids go to lots of tournaments and they're up till midnight sometimes doing these tournaments and it's a whole different model now but um i i guess to end the short answer to your question is i've i've always been very active and that just continued and up into high school uh, I started learning about training programs and working on my own long distance running training programs um, as well and my mom helped to drive that and drove the whole athletic nutrition base that I learned and um, uh, illness recovery nutrition base and and um, fitness her answer if I had a mild fever was to go out and run five miles so there's that (laughs) first go out and run five miles and kill the bugs and we'll see what's happening (laughs) and i know i have the advantage of uh, getting each of my interviewees to fill out a brief bio and i know you were an injured runner and because physicians at that time weren't quite sure what to do you kind of accidentally fell into cycling and like many cyclists you quickly found out that uh Sometimes you get hurt when you crash, but you worked in cycling for quite a few years. What was it that transitioned you out of cycling? And did you go from cycling into veterinary rehab or was there a a path after working in cycling? There was another step before you got into veterinary rehab. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Yeah, as I said, I, I, I was a sort of lazy runner in high school and did fairly well. And then, uh, I graduated high school in Fairfax, Virginia, and my dad had been working in Washington, D.C., 
And then we moved back to Texas where my parents were both from. And I went to the University of Texas, but I couldn't really complete any of the cross country workouts. And and that time I had been on an um, in between when I graduated high school, I'd really wanted to go out and run wild. And so my uh, parents gave me an outward bound, a three week outward bound trip um, as a graduation present, which was great. But I had, you know, bad boots, I guess, and hiking with a whatever heavy packs they gave us is 30, 50 pounds. They were, they weren't light packs and lots of miles. And the, the model of Outward Bound is, is great. And I had a great time, but things started happening with my knees then that hadn't happened before. And then I, I couldn't really finish a workout and nobody was sure what was happening um, inside my knees. And there were all these different suggestions. And in the meantime, I figured out that cycling was going to help strengthen my quads. And this was in 1981, actually. And so I started riding. And, of course, that wasn't enough. I needed to race. Well, no, first I needed to, in um, in a whimsical manner, uh, just take off and ride 100 miles without much planning, like we do when we're young and we don't know any different. And I dragged friends out. And I got hooked up with some racers and started racing. But um, uh, a couple crashes and a crash and an uh, important time, um, right before I was going to a training camp at the Olympic Training Center, I went ahead to the camp, but I got to sit out a lot and uh, uh, listen to too much of the politics of the coaches at that time, which was interesting. And I took a time out for about a year and then turned around and started working in professional cycling. So I was an um, uh, assistant coach. I was a coach. I was a, what they call a soigneur. I would get all the food and the nutrition and the water and the recovery. I would do the massage therapy for big teams, for um, the U.S. men's team on some um, uh, international trips. And so I climbed up this ladder and I used skills I already had and I learned new skills. And um, I moved to Denver in 1987, I think it was, the Denver area, uh, to work further in cycling. And um, a couple things happened. I think one was um, uh, I worked in both men's and mostly women's cycling, professional cycling, and we just didn't do so well at a couple of Olympics and then sponsorship falls out. And uh, cycling has always been more of a hard sell in this country. I mean, it's waxed and waned, but getting the attendance at events, it has to be typically a dynamic event, you know, downtown, a criterium that's really fast and fast paced and the sponsors can get their money's worth. They think, you know, from the viewing public, we don't tend to show up at, at these long distance races with a picnic blanket like they do in France and drink all day and cheer on the cyclists. And, and we just don't tend to do that as a nation. And um, I mean, it happens in pockets, but the um, sponsorship fell out and I was ready to make some changes. So I moved back to Austin and I think there was probably about a 10 year period where, I was doing a random variety of work, but also doing um, more like personal training coaching on the side. And I kept that up. And so there's kind of even a gap on my LinkedIn. I mean, it's not a gap because I, I have been doing um, more professional. I mean, I've been doing uh, coaching advice, nutrition, um, personal training, you know, all those different things since the early 1980s. But during the time where I wasn't specifically working for somebody, I just had that as a, a side venture. 
And I, um, I had a great Dane that had a, a large variety of problems. And I met a veterinary surgeon in Austin and skipping past a lot of details. At one point she asked me, um, I was bugging her about, uh, I was bugging her about a lymph node dissection I had had on myself and why the medical system couldn't come up with a better answer. And I said, don't you people have stains? Can't you figure this out? What's benign, but reactive reactive to what? And I was just rattling off all this stuff because it was irritating me. I haven't come from a, a, a sports background and working at a higher level in professional sports, I was used to a different method of finding answers because you find answers more quickly, I believe, when there's a lot of money involved or a big institution involved. So at the university level, at the national or Olympic class, world-class level, or even the military. And you, you know that from your CSCS, and I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist also. And you know, there's, there's some big groups that drive a lot of the best stuff and then it filters down, you know? And I was like, well, why don't we have all this? What do you mean? And she goes, she just said, why don't you leave me alone and come bother my animals? And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I was bugging her about, you know, medicine and why didn't it do this? And why didn't it do that? Why was it so slow? And why couldn't they do a better job of diagnosing? And, you know, I was just going on and I didn't really, have an, a knowledge of how the general system worked. I knew how it worked at a higher professional level, but it's just different in the average everyday system. And um, also uh, she had a habit of, of contacting me two weeks before they were going to go, you know, heavy doing heavy duty skiing each year and wanting me to set up a training program. So she wouldn't get sore. I said, all I can do is make you more sore before you go, but let's go for it. <laughs> you know, because two weeks before we're going to go skiing, you know, and we would do some workouts and stuff. And I would, I would get her semi prepped. I, I would rather have a little bit more than two weeks, you know, but, but you get that set in and, and uh, I guess she was never grossly injured. And she says, why don't you leave me alone and come bother the animal? So that, I didn't know veterinary rehabilitation was a thing, but I had already been doing a science that I knew to help recover my Great Dane, who really was an um, orthopedic and, and immune system disaster project, but the, the greatest soulmate of my life at this point. I didn't marry a horse, but I might have married my Great Dane at some point. I don't know. Um, so uh, I got involved in looking into you know, what was into that. And I actually took some time because it was something I was super interested in, but it was a big move to go to work for somebody and, you know, not knowing the dynamics of a big system like that and knowing that I had a whole lot more skills than they knew I had, but wondering how to put those together. So that came together. I, I built their rehab department completely from scratch and I had had a lot of construction knowledge background. I'd owned some houses. I'd actually worked in construction in the off season times um when i wasn't racing and i just had a lot of knowledge so i was able to to work on um you know putting in all the water and the backflow and all the random stuff and figure out how i wanted our what type of water treadmill i wanted and help design that because the designs that existed i didn't think were good for accommodating certain types of of dogs large ones and i wanted to do certain things and not do other things and so we got that and I, I found out about some other very interesting things and I incorporated them and, and a lot of it I crossed over from um, work I had also been doing with um, 
people with chronic disease in the 10 years before, you know, in between bike racing stuff and getting involved in, um, in veterinary rehab was maybe more like 15 years. Um, I started working with people with chronic illness and I just fell into that and getting them recovering in nutrition and lifestyle plans and movement plans. And so I knew, uh, information about a lot more neurological information and I incorporated some overhead lifts and uh, just a lot of different things. So it was really a a very state of the art uh, rehab department, um, even though I'm small, but not as small as some of my friends who are in rehab who are just given an office and a brain to work with. (laughs) And they may not have any other tools. Um, And I, uh, I worked for that hospital for two years and I went to the rehab coursework hoping to find more um, exercise physiology, which they weren't teaching at the time uh, very much or very well at all. It was very heavy on, on what I call the bells and whistles. So um, those are things that I had a lot of experience with either on myself from all my injuries or in professional sports. And that's not where you start. You don't start in the middle for lack of a better recovery plan. And then you decide to apply acupuncture or laser therapy or ultrasound therapy. You, you really need to incorporate the physical and then see what's missing and needs a little bit more help. But, um, it was, um, just some, uh, a lot of, you know, just, it was fairly new. I think official veterinary rehab was about five years old when, when I took the coursework and there's a university based, um, set of coursework that's very well known and I have that certification and then there's a more um, known to be more holistic based and that one's very well respected and I've had some friends take that certification um, and so then I guess that's the short answer or the long answer to how I got got started in the veterinary rehab. It sounds like the veterinary rehab is following a similar path to what human rehab followed maybe a couple of decades after it used to be with if you'd go to see a physical therapist with an injury there would be all kinds of soft treatments you know you'd lay it it's almost like you'd walk in and say okay here i am fix me and they do ultrasound and they do e-stim etc and now with the understanding of what physical exercise or, or actually just movement and using that, and then you use the ultrasound and the stim, et cetera, as an adjunct. It's kind of, instead of treating the symptoms, they're starting to treat the problem and identify the problem. It sounds like you are picking up on the fact that in many instances with animals, they're treating the symptoms with these soft treatments. And you're saying, well, wait a second, the, the dogs are physiological beings or the cats are physiological beings. Why can't we do similar things to what we do with humans with the part of the fact that you're working with animals and not a human where you can say, okay, do three sets of 10 leg lifts and I'll come back in five minutes. Yeah, that's a good synopsis. Thank you. That's much shorter than I would ever answer. <laughs> I have yes, no, or a three page long answer. Those are my, that's my on and off. I've got yes or no, or three pages of an answer, but yeah. And it's, and it was, it was very disheartening. Um, Every, everybody I met in veterinary rehab and still to this day is very excited about it, but there's not a deep foundation and in, in, most of the practitioners um, don't have any foundation in exercise science and it's not taught even to my knowledge. It may be in the coursework that um, the ladies who were in Florida, but now I think in Colorado and um, their rehab program 
so there's excitement and it's like getting into anything new but when you don't have a, a a broad depth of experience you think all these things are magic and they're going to work and so i saw veterinarians you know um jumping forward into e-stim acupuncture needling and i'm like oh my god some of that stuff is so painful some of the deep uh pressure point you know there's a lot of semi-painful and very painful things that veterinary rehabilitation has nominally gotten into. But if I just, whenever a veterinarian or anybody else asks me, you know, I'd like to get into rehab. How did you? And I tell them before they do this other coursework, I say, don't even take the other coursework, study exercise physiology or kinesiology or exercise science and do an internship with a professional team and you be uh, study athletic training. You are going to learn volumes more about how to recover these other animals because it's not, you know, they treat the, like you call soft treatment um, protocol is like a, is, to me, it's like pharmaceutical medicine. It's, it's just like a lot of them and a lot of nutritionists treat supplements just like pharmaceutical medicine. My cancer friends, you know, go to a, one of the, um, some of the better one in particular, better known nutritionist in Austin, but that person was, you know, never writing a program. First, he was just saddling people with hundreds of dollars of supplements that they don't want to take in the first place. People aren't naturally pill poppers. I mean, I was brought up that way. We had supplements going on in my family from the mid seventies on, and we were the health food nuts and we had our own chickens and we had organic gardens. And so that's different than the way most people are brought up. And so to say, Oh, here, take this handful of pills. And they don't want to do that for their pets either. And so whether it's pharmaceuticals or nutrition helps that are not specific, but very broad, and you're just supposed to shovel this in, but not actually come up with a plan that's progressive that sees some, some real outcomes. So I had this idea too, that I think, you know, I personally think that, you know, and it's, it's not just that I think it, it is that the human physical therapy model is in a lot of ways based on billable outcomes and billable hours, because you have to, you know, if you're going to get insurance to pay for something, you have to prove you did something. And so they have to say, well, we move this shoulder another quarter inch or we loosen this up. But in my world, I continually run into people who are really greatly harmed by that approach. There are lots of good physical therapists out there, lots of good recovery specialists that don't harm people. But a lot of times you do have young graduates that have, you know, somebody who is elderly, who's got so many issues with their body and they get pushed beyond a certain degree, um, shoulders dislocated, hips dislocated, things broken, things torn. And the model doesn't call for that. The model says you did this last week. So do this this week, you know, and I, I kind of got the feeling that that's also sort of, you know, that there's these new bells and whistles. We haven't run into vet veterinary medicine. It might be ultrasound. It might be ESTEM. It might be laser therapy. It might be this. And let's put that on top, but without another plan. And it's kind of the same as, as when I see people go to physical therapy, but not get any better and sometimes get hurt. There's some middle ground missing and it has to do with the fact that we have to move and we have to move in the right way. And our body has to be strengthened to support that movement. I think that's maybe a good way to make a synopsis of that. We have to move, we have to move in the right way for our condition and we have to have the right work to strengthen our body to support that movement 
so that we can progress to the next movement. You know, I deal with that with my dad right now. He's got torn things and frozen things. And at one point he had let himself um, gain a whole lot of weight and it, it just wasn't sustainable. And uh, after he realized he was miserable living, living that way, he's been working on making changes. But it's been hard to find a physical therapist where he lives that's helpful and can deal with somebody that age and, and who has all those comorbidities. And if I put a little bit more time into it, I could probably find him somebody at the university level that deals with the sports team for the university where he lives or something like that. And I, I haven't been able to get that done. But in the meantime, I have him going to the pool, speaking of water treadmill, <laughs> and because he doesn't have pain medication that's helping him. And that's another one of my big, big um, drives is to, to push to get uh, more um, thoughtful pain medication with pharmaceuticals that's followed and pursued and titrated on and titrated off and useful while you're doing specific rehab work. And if you can get the work done because the pain's alleviated, then you're going to build muscle, build connective tissue strength, build neuromuscular conduction, all these different things, and be able to get off of the medications. So the medications are not a permanent thing if you can get the work done. And that's the theory, and that works out in, in practical application, and you can find research studies that support that too. So now I answered 50 questions with one big answer. One I of think. the things that uh, Deborah Carroll of Rehab Deb has talked about is her transition into working with rehab for animals. It occurred to me, Deborah, in your conversation, which you're saying that the things that you did not like about the traditional rehab with dogs and traditional physical therapy, that from interviewing a variety of people on both Moving to Live and my local podcast, Fit Lab Pittsburgh, there are these small pockets of medical practitioners who have this similar idea, you know, whether they're physical therapists or chiropractors or uh, other, whatever the certification or accreditation is who recognize, I want to do this because I want to help people. I don't worry about billable hours. And there are these pockets in various places that it's one of those things you have to know somebody who knows somebody, almost the secret handshake. And then you find this professional, this man or this woman, and it's like, oh my God, why doesn't everybody know about this person? Because what he or she is doing is following physiological uh, protocols and phys physiological uh, practices and saying, you know, okay, this is how it should work, but you're an N of one. And, you know, just because the typical protocol says this is where you should be three, three months after hip surgery, you may not be that person because of all these other factors. And it sounds like you've taken that and introduced it into something that maybe is before its time or very early in its time where people want to keep their animals around as long as possible as you did with the, with your uh, dog that you formed that tremendous bond with. Yeah. And, and you find, um, I, I have clients that what we call allied health practitioners, which is, I guess what you and I are too, sort of, I, um, but uh, let's say occupational therapists, other physical therapists, massage therapists. And when, uh, uh, as I mentioned to you before, a lot of times I, most of my caseload has already been around the block 10 times and has been through most of their money and has been through several different types of vets and specialists and allied practitioners. And they're, they're not 
getting any simple foundation and especially in neurological problems, because that's something I've been working on and, and I've tapped into and I have some great protocol for, but again, I'm one person living really pretty much hand to mouth, trying to, trying to make these changes in veterinary medicine, but um, bringing in what we a lot of times call functional medicine. So I'm, you know that term, I'm sure. And I've been a member, we've had two functional medicine groups in Austin, Texas, where I've, I've lived um, and where my mailing address is for the past 30 years. But um, at, is, if, you know, allied therapists can come along and I say blah, blah, blah about their recovery, it's something that is possibly and usually already occurred to them intuitively. And they haven't been validated by the medical people they're seeking out, um, especially if we're talking about for veterinary medicine for their pet. And they say, um, I actually had a case of um, a large breed dog that was actually smaller than she should have been because uh, she had some deformations. But she also um, had a, a spinal injury, uh, uh, maybe a crushed pelvis and some other things going on there. And by the time I saw her, one hamstring was irreparably contracted and one quadricep was irreparably contracted. And I saw her um, about six months after the initial injury or the initial consult with the surgeon. The occupational therapist at the time said, hey, but isn't there physical therapy that can help this? This is before the contracture occurred, just when the issues were happening. And is um, knee-jerk reaction was, no, physical therapy won't help that. Well, he doesn't know physical therapy. He didn't know therapy. He didn't know athletic training. He didn't know sports recovery. He didn't know sport training, you know, in a methodical sense. Um, um, he was a semi-athletic person. But um, these are the things that that are are just, for whatever reason, they're misrepresented. Because if I had gotten my hands on that dog and then the occupational therapist who would know how to continue what I prescribed, uh, I would say that, that she wouldn't have ever gotten contracted because, you know, certainly there's things you can do even in that case, if you've got um, flaccid limbs, that's the only place I think range of motion is important. And I have a lot of posts on my website about why you don't need to do range of motion on a pet that can move its own limbs. So that's another topic, but I get, you know, massage therapists and they, um, they've studied, they've, they've, you know, been in practice for a long time. And I talked to them about how, you know, we can give feedback as humans and say, yeah, that hurts or blah, blah, blah. And a dog's version of that is might be to turn around and nip at you, which is frequently misinterpreted, but you hit a, a bad spot on the spine, you're going to get a head jerk, you know, if it's painful, right. From a, from a pet or um, whatever. But I've also introduced a method of a mild vibrational massage therapy that is a no-brainer for anybody to do. And all of the massage therapists that I deal with get the concept because of the way the vibration is and the tool that I recommend that they use and the way that that can increase the circulation because we don't need to be digging in and working out knots on these pets. We need to help them help themselves because I think they're better at helping themselves than we are in some ways, but they also don't have the cognitive ability to say, Hey, I just had a hip replacement. I shouldn't jump out of this truck because I'm going to crack my femur, which is a real case that 
happen immediately after a hip replacement. It happens all the time. So the dogs aren't going to stop themselves. They see a cat or the T-bone or they want to get, you know, to the mailman, they're going to bust up whatever their injury is. So we have to participate in controlling them there, but we also need to use their own instincts better, which would work for us if we weren't so psychologically resistant. You know, we have to go on a passive range of motion machine after knee surgery because we're like, oh my God, that hurts. Put me on morphine and just run that in circles or leave me alone. I don't want to move it. And my finding is that um, the pets will move if their pain is is um, dealt with. Sometimes they will move on top of that pain and make an injury or a surgery even worse. And they just need to be guided to do their natural thing. And um, I think I've strayed off your question, but uh, I find that a lot of allied health professionals really get it when I mention things to them because it, it goes in line with what they've already been practicing or they can incorporate an additional idea. Like I say, stop trying to manipulate with your hands because you've got internal injuries here and pain and muscle issues that you're not really going to see even, and even though you have a, a good sense of feel. You know, a lot of good massage therapists have a good sense, but let's do this thing that works passively, but with the animal's biochemistry, you know, so I introduce, you know, that's an adjunctive therapy and I use laser therapy a lot too, but I want to use these in conjunction with a physical plan that's appropriate for the pet, not just as, oh, well, here, just do this massage, just do this laser, but don't do anything else. You know, that just isn't going to work in the long run. It sounds like your idea for rehab for pets at prehab for pets is similar to a allied health professional who is on the ball and is not so much focused on billable hours. You're just treating a pet instead of a human. Yes. And I do still work with a lot of humans. Um, I've been so focused on the veterinary uh, medicine and now I've got uh, thousands of cases and uh, I guess about 15 years of, of, professional veterinary practice and um having you know a hard time collecting all my data because since i became independent in 2007 technology's changed a lot so i've got stuff here and stuff there i would like to get a lot more published before i'm i move on to working more with humans again i mentioned i have breast cancer and i've got a lot of a lot of work i'd like to do in helping um cancer patients and especially women with breast cancer return to outdoor work and healthy, um, whatever it takes for them. I mean, there's everything from, from nerve pain, you know, foot nerve pain from chemo treatment, loss of balance, loss of, um, sense of what their body is, you know, so I would like to, to move back to, to more humans. And I also work with some professional athletes still that, um, are individuals that do ultra racing, um, trail or cycling. I've been predominantly in the past couple of years doing some recovery work with an ultra cyclist who um, was our 24 hour national champion last year. And that's been interesting. And so I haven't, uh, I haven't let go of the human work and there's a lot I'd like to do there while at the same time, I don't feel like I can change the veterinary stuff fast enough. And then I'm busy living hand to mouth. So <laughs> it's a lot to, to juggle. <laughs> We're talking. And then my social media goes goes by the wayside, and you know everything kind of gets pieced pieced out here and there. Go ahead. 
We're talking to Deborah Carroll, Rehab Deb. It sounds like you are the ethos of uh, FitLab Pittsburgh and Moving to Live, where you really value movement. For people who are listening to this and who value their pets like I do and maybe don't have the background in physiology that I do because, or they don't really, it's often hard to work on either your family member, whether they're human or four-legged, how do they find out about you and how do they work with you because you are mobile? Do you work with people virtually? Do you work mostly through veterinarians? Um, both. And the way my practice has changed in the past five years is that I have become a lot more virtual. Um, that coincided. I had, when I left the specialty hospital at the end of 2006, I, it occurred to me, I, I left first and I, I wasn't really sure what the next model was going to look like. And then it occurred to me, huh, I have all this history of traveling with national and world-class cycling teams and dealing with athletes on tracks and in the field. I'm like, good grief. You know, I, I can do a mobile practice. At first, you know, I didn't have that concept. And during my rehab coursework, I met one one woman. I think she was out of Canada, and she was intending to leave rehab coursework and start. And this was in 2005, and so it was all a pretty new thing anyway, animal rehab and, and small animal medicine. And um, she was going to do a mobile or a standalone clinic. And at the time I thought, wow, how can you do that? Because you run into so many problems and you need to turn them back to the surgeon and turn them back to the veterinarian. Um, so I had a blockage at that time, but after working a little bit and figuring out, hey, I already have this knowledge and these skills, I just hadn't put it together. So a lot of things occurred to me along the way. Um, I had surgeries on my dog that I wouldn't have today because I hadn't put stuff together. Um so yeah, it's like everything, you know, we hopefully learn as we go along and you go, oh, hey, I used to do that. Wonder why I forgot to do that. I wonder why I don't do that anymore. Oh, yeah, I should do this therapy or, oh, this therapy matches with this condition. Let's see what happens if I do it. So it's been, uh, but I've had a broad background, you know, to do that in. And when I first started with the veterinary rehab, I, I didn't have um, nearly, um my own body issues that I've, I've had since then, because not, not only um, did I find my own lumps that grew uh, and, and was diagnosed with breast cancer in 07, I've uh, torn the labrum in both hips and both shoulders. And I found out I've had a torn meniscus in my right knee for a long time. Um, but I worked through that. I worked through, I've worked through everything non-surgically. I herniated um, some lumbar discs in um, 2013, and I'd had a history of uh, back spasms and um, different back things that there's a progression and, you know, it led up to eventually herniating disc. And I recovered all these things and many more injuries. I've had torn Achilles, um, cracked tailbone, uh, have bone spurs on my C-spine. Um, I don't know, a bunch of garbage, but I've learned through that. Um, and so um, I've even uh, been misdiagnosed so many times that at this point, if I get injured, I just text my oncologist and ask her if I can have an MRI on a body part. It's my mom's doing, I suppose, plus my personality that, uh, and plus my experiences. Like you mentioned earlier in high school, I had injuries and in the mid seventies, the doctors were like, well, this girl shouldn't be running 15 miles a day anyway. Um, so they weren't even accepting of, of high level female athletes. 
And I was not one of those females that did so much work that I, I lost my period where I did have friends that did that. So that was another huge concern at that time and still is, you know, but now we know to look at nutrition, to look at overtraining. And at that time, honestly, it was still, well, you don't need to be running that much. Girls aren't supposed to be, running. you know, <laughs> like really? So my mom rejected all that. And I rejected a lot about the system early on, which is another reason why I just didn't end up pursuing an academic, um, becoming a medical doctor or later becoming a veterinarian. I realized in veterinary medicine, sometimes some of my stuff would be easier if I were a licensed veterinarian, but I, I don't feel like that's an answer because I would rather find collaborative veterinarians who understand, um, or can learn to understand where I'm coming from and we can work, they can do their part, which is in, in my world, a lot of times prescribing the right mixes of pain medications so we can get the work done so that the tech can improve and get off the medications. Um, and that's, you know, I guess that's the synopsis of my, my main goal there. And I've already given you a long answer and forgotten your original question. So <laughs> We've had the good fortune to be talking with Deborah Carroll of Rehab Deb. I think she really has emphasized the importance of movement in life, both for people and for four-legged animals. I think it's uh, very interesting how she's taken the programming model that we use with humans, and we all talk about there being the science of coaching and the art of coaching. I think that's even more important, the science of rehab and the art of rehab when you work with animals, because as Deborah said, the dog or the cat can't tell you, hey, that hurts, so you really have to understand She's got an extensive website with a lot of readings and a lot of links. She's authored a couple of books that she has links to, and we'll have that all in the show notes. Deborah, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live and describe what you do in, in the movement field relating to animals as somebody who takes my dogs out most days of the week and lets them do what they want to do as far as moving, whether it's run, walk, or just sniff along. I want to thank you for what you do. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And there's a lot, you know, we could continue to talk about. And I, I appreciate the work you're doing and, and getting the word out and um, letting people know in, in all of these aspects that there, there might be another way to look at their healing and, and, it's, and it's proven and it's solid. And um, we need to, I say cross-contaminate. We need to cross-pollinate, <laughs> cross-contaminate more. We need to share, you know, I say a lot of times, you can have neurologists and neuroscientists at the same conference and they can be arguing about points and they really need each other, but so infrequently do they join hands, you know, and it's the same with a lot of stuff. You've got psychiatrists and psychologists and you've got, you know, and those are even within, you know, the same general area. So if we can all, you know, do more to break down the barriers and I know there's some good movements uh, afoot um, starting to try to bring different aspects of medicine together to to help anyone who wants to learn a better practice and a, a more broader a broad uh, have a more broad knowledge base um, to help whoever their clients and patients are thanks for listening to the latest episode of moving to live make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest as well as links about all the things we talked about Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email 
MLV number two LIV at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. Mm-hmm.